Happy Sabbath. I am happy to be here. Wow. Praise. I just didn't want to come up here. I was like, let's just listen to them for an hour and then go home. Is anyone here good at Tetris? Tetris. Anyone good at Tetris? I have a friend who is freakishly good at Tetris. And he does this thing that seems to propel him to be better constantly while simultaneously stressing out everyone around him. And if you've ever played Tetris, um, or if you've ever played like the battling style of Tetris where you play against people and then like every time you get a Tetris, it sends like extra lines to the people you're battling against. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So if I play this with him and his, our mutual friends, and um, whenever we play this game, and everyone's like concentrating, and they just like want to hurry and hurry and get some Tetrises going, this friend is always chanting something to himself. Okay? He is constantly chanting, faster, 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 right? And it's so stressful because it like works for him. And he does go faster. He's like, faster, faster, faster. And then I'm, I'm like distracted by his fasters. And then, then he sends lines and then I like, oh, and then I get frazzled. And then he sends more lines and then he's like, faster, faster, faster. And I'm like, stop saying that. And then I lose and I hate it. Faster, faster, faster. Let's pray as we get into the word this morning. Holy Spirit, this is your time to do whatever you want to do. This is your message. Father, as we open the word, help us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive directly from you. For any person here um, who is going through something that you want to speak directly to this morning, may we receive. Amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chris kicked off a new sermon series called I'm Going Through Something. And then Pastor Jonathan Dude, last week, he preached a fire sermon. I don't know if you guys were here last week, but if you did not hear it, please go and like, you're, you, guys, you guys should know better than me, but on the podcast app. The sermon last week was so good. Um, I listened to it this past week, and it was a sermon for anyone who is going through or has gone through or loves someone who is going through depression or loneliness or hopelessness. And you know, I just want to say you all are so lucky up here because you have the highest caliber of preachers at this church. Okay, Chris, I said it, so Venmo me $20, okay? Um, I'm just kidding. You, you honestly really do have the highest caliber of preachers here. And since I heard about this sermon series, I've been praying over and talking to your pastors about what my topic should be for this Sabbath. What should my I'm going through something topic be? And Pastor Chris asked me what I thought about preaching on burnout. And it's probably because for many years in ministry, and whenever I like call him to like vent, I'm like always burnt out. Um, faster, faster, faster. Have you ever heard of hurry sickness before? Hurry sickness? Psychology Today describes it as a restlessness in which a person feels chronically short of time and so they tend to perform every task faster, and they get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Okay? Hurry sickness, hurrying, feeling overwhelmed by everything you have to do, feeling burnt out, feeling pulled in a bunch of different directions, feeling constantly exhausted. 
If you are going through this right now, or if you've been through it before, or if you're like, I'm four, I don't know what you're talking about, you're gonna go through it one day too. So we're gonna jump right into the word this morning. We're gonna look at Mark chapter five, verse 21, and you can just follow along on the screen. Mark five, verse 21 says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Okay, so Jairus, he's the leader, religious leader, kind of religious elite. It's a really big deal that he's falling to his feet, at Jesus' feet, um, and he pleaded earnestly with him. He said, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. There's a crisis happening. This is an SOS. This is an urgent emergency phone call that needs immediate attention. Right? Jesus, please, I need you right now. You need to come with us right now. Let's keep going. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Okay, so they're on their way to this man's house to heal his baby girl. And it says... There's a large crowd around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She spent all her money, but instead of getting better, she got worse. And when she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in this very large crowd and touched his cloak, his coat, his jacket, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And God's word says, immediately, the moment the touch happens, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. It's really beautiful. Verse 30, at once, okay, in that moment, Jesus instantly realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? I want you to take a moment to imagine if you are the synagogue leader, if you are Jairus, more importantly, in that moment, if you are the dad who has rushed to get the teacher, the healer, the doctor, to come and save his baby girl, light of his life, and he agrees to come with you, but then as you're rushing him along, right, there's no car at this point, you can't be like, okay, just get in my car, I'll drive. You have to walk to your home, and you're speed walking, you're kind of jogging, you're like, okay, Jesus, please, please. And then... Jesus is like, someone touched me. It's like, uh, who cares who touched you? Just come on. We need to go now. Verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? Like, even Jesus' disciples are like, Jesus, this is not the time and place. Like, we gotta go. Like, the, the baby girl. And Jesus he pauses here. It says, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Jairus is like, Jesus, this is urgent. And he's, Jesus is looking around. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the truth. And then Jesus was like, lady, come on, I'm trying to go and heal a little girl, so get out of my way, you're slowing me down. He, did, he didn't say that. Um, verse 34, Jesus says to this woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Okay, that was story number one. Story number two, 
in John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the, the one you love is sick. Jesus, one of your best friends is sick. Jesus, Lazarus, the one that you love, he's sick. You need to come now. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. If you see this response, if someone came to you and they're like, hey, one of your best friends is very, very ill and you have the ability to fix the situation, what would you do, right? How would you feel? But Jesus, in his response, he is not stressed, he's not panicked. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, because he loved Lazarus, right? He loved his sisters. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Okay, and the story continues. If you have read through the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, something that you can notice is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. Okay? Jesus, in story after story, was very present to the moment. He was present to God. He was present to the people standing around him. He was present to the one person he was engaged in conversation with. And Jesus had a regular practice of asking questions, of dialoguing with people, of interacting intentionally. He was present to the things that were going around, on around him. He noticed the birds in the sky. He noticed the lilies that grew out of the earth. He was present to beauty. He was present to pain and to suffering. And he was even present to his own body and his own like physical, like what's going on with him and the condition of his soul. Right? At one point we see him pray, Father, my soul is deeply troubled right now. And when Jesus shows us in his life and in his teachings, what he shows us is an unhurried and present way of living. So what does this mean for you and I as people who say we want to be followers of Jesus? People who are regularly suffering from going through hurry sickness, from faster, faster, faster. And maybe you're like, oh, well, you know, like, I hurry sometimes, but I don't, I'm, I'm not, hurry sickness, no, that's not me. This is a really easy self-assessment. When you walk with your friends or you walk with your family, who is usually at the front of the group? Okay. If it's you, I'm told that you might have some control freak issues, okay? Some control freak tendencies, or, or you have really long legs or you have both. Um, I can be a little, bit, a little bit of a control freak sometimes, and sometimes, even when I'm in a brand new place, brand new city, and someone else is leading me because they're like born and raised in this place, and I don't know where I'm going, I find myself walking ahead of them, right? And to the point where they think I know where I'm going. I, I have no idea where I'm going. An essential part of being a follower of someone, right, as followers of Jesus, an essential part of being a follower of someone is to match your pace to the one who you are following. To follow Jesus is to walk with Jesus. It means you match your pace with him, which for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, it means that 
we need to slow down. Okay, we need to slow down because this hurry, this busyness, this faster, 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 this pace, it robs us of the capacity to be present to God, to be present to the person next to us, to be present to our kids, to our friends, to the person on the street who needs a little bit of compassion. It robs us of the capacity to be present to the world around us on a beautiful day and to our physical body and our own soul. John Ortberg, um, pastor and author, he talks about when he was first starting out at Willow Creek Church, which at that time when Willow Creek was like, you know, when he started working there, it was one of the most influential churches in the world. Um, it was, and he found himself just, um, he was getting sucked into the busyness, the craziness of that church culture and the impact that it was having on his spiritual growth. So he called up his mentor, Dallas Willard, who's just like a spiritual giant, and Pastor John Ortberg, he is expressing to his mentor, like he's telling him like, it's just crazy lately, like I don't even have time to myself, I'm just always doing th something, my to-do list is endless. And he said, I'm stuck. How do I move forward and how do I get healthy again? How do I, how do, I do life? And he says that there was just a long silence on the other side of the phone. And then Dallas Willard just spoke these two sentences. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay? Pastor John, he's like writing it down. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's great, amazing. Okay, What's, what else? What, what else should I do? What else will help me? And then Dallas Willard said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. When I first heard this story, it struck a chord in me because this answer would never have occurred to me. You know why? Because I work at Loma Linda Korean Church. And before I started practicing this teaching of Jesus in my own life, and even now, I relapse constantly. When people would ask me, Pastor, how are things going at Loma Linda? My response would be, it's busy, right? It's busy. Pastor, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good, just busy. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied this in Scripture, the more I see it over and over again in Jesus' life, the more this truth, like, shines. The greatest enemy of spiritual life, maybe not in all of history, but today, in our current day, is hurry. And it would be so much easier if Satan like just showed up like he's like, I don't know, wearing red and he has like horns and he has a pitchfork and he's like, worship me. I don't know why I thought Satan would sound like that. Okay, but whatever, right? Satan's like, worship me, right? That's so much easier for us to be like, no thank you, instead of a dopamine hit that you get from scrolling on your phone or just one more hour of work before you go home, or just one more yes instead of no, adding one more commitment after one more commitment to your already over-busy life. Michael Zigarelli of the Charleston Southern University School of Business, he did a survey of 20,000 Christians in North America, and he identified the number one distraction to people's lives with God, number one, busyness. 
And if you will indulge me, I'm going to share a quick history lesson that I found fascinating. Um, it's in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So, ironically enough, the clock, the very first clock, was actually invented in a monastery in the 6th century. And St. Benedict came up with this idea of fixed hour prayer, which just means like you pray at the same time every day. Um, and they were going to try to do this seven times a day. But that's hard to do at a fixed hour if you don't know what time it is. So the monks at that monastery invented the first clock. But it wasn't until 1370 that historians say became the turning point of Western society's relationship with time. Because that was the year that the first public clock was set up in Germany. And it shifted our relationship to time. Because now everyone was more synchronized, at least in that town. Right? Because everyone knew what time it was. It was all at the same time. And this shift with our relationship with time, it was tapped into more deeply during the Industrial Revolution to increase productivity with workers, right? That nine to five grind. And it has made us way more efficient, but it has also made us way more like machines. And then, in 1879, Thomas Edison, he invented the light bulb. He doesn't seem that happy about it, but he did. Um, and this really impacted our time for resting. Okay, don't cry when I tell you this. But did you know that before the light bulb was invented, the average American was sleeping 10 to 11 hours every night? <sighs> Sounds beautiful, right? And you know when we hear like these stories of these great men and women of faith, how in the olden days they would wake up at 4 a.m. and spend time on their knees in prayer with God. And we're like, that's amazing, but I could never do that. Dude, they slept at like 6 p.m., okay? There were no lights. There were no phones. There was no Netflix. There was no internet. You would be able to wake up at 4 a.m. too. Now, studies show that the average American is down to seven hours a night, okay? 10 to 11 to seven. And then about a century ago, once again, our relationship with time shifted due to technology and labor-saving devices. So we are more efficient than any point in human history. We've saved so much time, but despite our laundry machines and our dishwashers and our microwaves and our cars and our planes, we all feel like we have less time and not more. And then in 2007, another ginormous shift happened Steve Jobs introduced us to the first iPhone. Isn't it so small? It's very cute. Okay. Um, this was also the year that Facebook and Twitter became global. It was the beginning of the digital age. And in the last 10 plus years, the smartphone has changed us. Like, there are literal studies that talk about how smartphones are requiring, or they are impacting our neurobiology, and they are decreasing our capacity for attention, focus. That's why some of you are not paying attention to me right now. Like, um, it's decreased our ability to be present the way that Jesus was present, right? And mental health professionals, they talk about hurry sickness, what I mentioned before. It's categorized in the DSM, in the Manual of Mental Disorders. And one psychologist gave a little test. This is like a little self-test to see if you have hurry sickness or not. Okay. Um, oh, actually, I didn't put this on the slide. Number one, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. Okay, okay. Um, number two, as you come to a stoplight, 
you are calculating the number of cars in each lane and you change lanes to the shorter line. Number three, you multitask to the point where you forget one of the tasks that you're doing. Okay, I feel like some of the expressions I see right now, you're like, Pastor, that's not hurry sickness, that's like being smart, right? <laughs> but friends, hurry is not good for your soul. It does things to it. And here are some of the effects that hurry can have on you. Number one, irritability. You're quick to lose your temper, you're cagey, you're uptight, especially with your family, right? The people you're close to. Number two, hypersensitivity. You're quick to get offended, you're angered easily about things that normally would just roll off of you. Number three, restlessness. When you finally do slow down to rest, you can't because you can't relax because you're constantly feeling that hurry, hurry, faster, faster, faster. Like I need to be doing something. Number four, compulsive overworking. You gotta do this, and then this other thing, and then this other thing, and then that, and then do this again. Number five, numbness. You do not have the capacity anymore to feel stuff, especially empathy, so you're just kinda numb to the things going on around you. Number six, escapist behaviors. This is when you binge watch Netflix or like whatever your escapist behavior is because you don't want to really deal with things going on without you, going on around you, so it's easier to just veg out. Number seven, you are disconnected from your identity and your calling. You forget who you are and what God has called you to do in your life. Number eight, you are not able to attend to your basic human needs like exercise or sleeping enough or eating healthy. Number nine, you are hoarding energy because you don't feel like you have energy to spare to anyone else. And number 10 is you compromise in spiritual practices. Okay? The very things that are the way that we connect to God, prayer, scripture, meal with community, church on Saturdays, time alone to just be in the quiet with God. These are often the first things that we cut out when we feel like we don't have time. How many of these symptoms are you honestly suffering from? So what's the solution? The solution is not more time. And you know that because you know that if you had more hours in a day, you would probably just fill up those extra hours with the same exact things that you are currently doing. And at the end of the day or at the end of the week, you would be more exhausted. So the solution is not more time, but the solution is to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. The solution is not to add, but to subtract. So people come to church and they think about spending time with God and they feel like, okay, it's like another thing that I have to add to my to-do list, like my busy life. And maybe because you know we're trying to live our lives and then we cram Jesus into the margins of space that have a little bit of wiggle room. But it doesn't work like that. And it makes Jesus a burden or like some kind of legalistic guilt trip or another thing rather than a relationship that will bring us into peace and balance. But one of the things we can do, we see this actually in the practice of Jesus, um, what we call spiritual disciplines. And something that God has been teaching me recently is how much people want the life of Jesus, or more accurately, the fruits of Jesus' life. Like, we want peace, we want the love, we want the patience, we want the wisdom. But we want those things many times without the lifestyle of Jesus. So um, I know there's like some runners 
at this church. I have so much respect for runners. While someone woohooed for being a runner, like that, I admire that because I am not a runner, okay? At my church in Loma Linda, we have a running club that meets every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. And every Sunday morning at 7 a.m., this group of runners meet. I attended for a little while because Pastor Richard Lee, my boss, he peer pressured me when I first got to Loma Linda. He said, if you want to do ministry well in Loma Linda, you need to join the running club. And I don't know what that says about the ministry I'm currently doing in Loma Linda, but let's just say I don't go to running club anymore. But when I see runners, I think, man, I wish I was a runner, right? They're so healthy, they're so fit and toned. They can run for more than three minutes without feeling like they're gonna throw up. Like they're so graceful, like, like beautiful gazelles. Um, and it's amazing to me that anyone can run and talk at the same time. Like, that's amazing. Like, what, God is, what a creator, okay, truly. But the problem is, I wish I was a runner, but the problem is, I don't want to run, okay? I don't want the lifestyle of a runner. I just want the fruits of the life of a runner. Do you hear what I'm saying? Maybe some of you have... You, there's some amazing cooks in this church, some of whose food I have tasted, some of whose food I'm still waiting to taste. Um, and maybe you're like, wow, they're so blessed with the gift of hospitality. Like their, their taste buds are just on another level. And you think to yourself, I want to be able to cook like that. But you don't actually want to cook, right? But you want to be able to cook like that. Right? We want the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. But that doesn't make sense. As a pastor who works primarily with grad students in Loma Linda, one of the most common prayer requests I get is, Pastor, can you pray that God will give me peace? And I always tell them, of course I can. But no matter how much I pray that God will give you peace, no matter how much he desires to pour peace into your life, if you do not give him space in your day or in your mind to receive, then how are you going to have peace? Right? If you don't give him opportunities throughout your day to share wisdom with you or give you an encouraging word, if you do not read his text messages to you, then how is he supposed to comfort you? So here are the top three practices that I find helpful in the fight against hurry. Number one, Sabbath. Sabbath. Taking a day in the week just like Jesus did, and resting and worshiping. Taking a break from studying, from work, and not feeling the slightest built guilty or the slightest built anxious about it because we trust in our God. Gathering around a table, enjoying fellowship, enjoying a good meal. And if you imagine that your soul has like a power bar like your phone does, like the battery power bar, and 100% is like, you are rested. You are like full to the top. It's what Jesus calls life to the full. And you're just like brimming over with love and joy and peace and generosity. You're fully present in the moment to God and the people around you. You're at ease. It's not that life is necessarily easy, but it's good. Right? That's, that's the, what Jesus refers to as life to the full. And then let's say 0% on that energy bar is like suicide, depression, um, death. It's just like you're so out of it that you're like in bed for weeks. I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, for most of my adult life and time in pastoral ministry, 
I wouldn't slow down or rest until I get, got down to like 10%, right, 20%, until I really, really have to rest. Because many of us, we're not good at slowing down. We're not good at resting. And if you're like, ha, joke's on you, Pastor Junie. I'm really good at resting. I binged watched Squid Game in one day. I only got out of bed once and it was to pee, right? There is a difference between rest and entertainment. There is a difference between rest and distraction. Sometimes after a day of doing nothing, where you're like, oh, okay, Sunday, like I got nothing going on, I'm just gonna rest all day. So that means I'm gonna lay in bed all day. Do you feel refreshed after that day? Honestly, you don't, you're right. You feel like kind of gross, you're like, ugh. So just practically speaking, has anyone played the computer game The Organ Trail before? I feel like many of you guys are too young. Okay, some of you. But you guys know what The Organ Trail is because it came here, right? The Organ Trail, okay. Oh, that was, okay. Um, did you know that history shows that the pioneers who kept Sabbath on the Oregon Trail, okay, who took 24 hours every week to rest and worship God, they arrived in Oregon before those who didn't keep Sabbath? That's cool, okay? The blue zone is a non-scientific term given to regions in the world that are home to some of the oldest people on earth. And um, one of those blue zones is Loma Linda, California, the hub of Seventh-day Adventists. And studies have shown that Seventh-day Adventists in the Blue Zone, they live on average 11 years longer than the average American. Okay, cool. But a doctor pointed out that if you count the time devoted to Sabbath over the average lifespan of an American, it equals 11 years. This doctor's hypothesis was that for every day you Sabbath, you literally get that day added back to your life. This is cool. Okay, approaching the things like, so my challenge to you guys when it comes to Sabbath is look at the things you do on Sabbath with these two questions through this lens. Number one, is this rest? And number two, is this worship? And if it's not, then shift some things around. Is this rest? Is this worship? The second practice against hurrying is the practice of silence and solitude, to spend intentional time in the quiet to be alone with you and God. And Jesus did this all the time, right? There's story after story of him waking up early, staying up late, going away into the wilderness for weeks at a time to just be alone with God and process his feelings with God. A few months ago, I was heavily encouraged slash forced by an older mentor pastor of mine to attend this retreat um, for pastors. And the purpose of this retreat is to help pastors do ministry from the overflow of God's grace in your life and not just like by your own strength or your own power or your own intentions. And I really didn't wanna go because I was like, I'm too busy. Right? I, was like, I, don't, I don't have time to go to this retreat, Pastor John, and he's like, Junie, I really think you need to go to this retreat because you seem burnt out to me. So I was like, okay, you're kind of, you're from the conference, you're kind of my boss. I was like, okay, I'll go. One of the days that we were there, the first full day that we, were day that we were there, they blocked out six hours, six hours where they said the only requirement is to go spend time with Jesus and enjoy it. Six hours. I know we're all pastors, but six hours is a long time. So they said, okay, this six hours, go and spend time with Jesus and enjoy it. And then they said, and if you fall asleep, 
Don't feel guilty because maybe Jesus is trying to give you some rest. But just go spend time with Jesus and enjoy it. So um, I go, I'm like trying to spend time with Jesus. Um, but at first I was just like, like trying to, I was being very like student methodical about it. So I was like writing in my prayer journal and I'm like looking over like scripture. And then I felt like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm spending time with Jesus. I feel like I'm doing an assignment. So I was sitting at this picnic table and I was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I had packed for myself. And then I started talking to Jesus. And, um, and then I started like, I shifted and I was talking to like God the Father and I started kind of blaming him for things. I was like, you know, it kind of feels awkward talking to you because I don't know if you knew this, but I'm kind of mad at you, right? And I was blaming God. I was expressing my frustration and anger towards God for some of the things that I had gone through somewhat recently and things that I felt like this was not fair. This was an unjust situation. And it's not fair. How come people keep making me do all these things just because they don't want to do it? And how come like all these things keep getting added to my plate? Like I didn't sign up for this. And so I'm like complaining to God and um, I told him that I feel like my relationship with you has shifted. I don't feel like loving father and like, like daughter. I feel like you are like this taskmaster boss and I'm just a replaceable worker. Like you don't care what happens to me as long as I do the work for you. So I told him this and then I was like, oh, I said that to you. Um, and then I felt this kind of quiet thought bubble up inside of me. And it, the thought was, so if you had this kind of misunderstanding with another human being, what would you do? And so I said out loud, I said, well, if I had this kind of situation with someone else, I'd probably approach that person. I would tell them what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and then they would probably correct that misunderstanding. And then the quiet stillness responded to me and said, how am I supposed to clear up misunderstandings with you when you don't listen to what I have to say? You don't read any of my texts to you. You ignore me. Ooh, it was true. It, like in that moment, I was like, I repent. <laughs> like literally I said, I said, you're absolutely right, I repent. Because for many months, I had only been going, to, going into God's word when I needed to preach or when I needed to teach. Right? So I was still reading my Bible a lot, but it was never for like the relational, it was never for the personal relationship. It was always because I need to teach someone else. And so we like, we kind of worked it out. We're better. Um, this time in silence and solitude that I spent in prayer, it let me process my feelings with God and then it allowed me to move forward in our relationship. And Jesus did this in the Garden of Gethsemane too. He went there to pray, to weep, to express his doubts, to vent to God. So often we seek out God when we are in places of pain and loneliness and sorrow, but we rush our time there because we don't like being there. It's uncomfortable. It's kind of scary. We don't like thinking about it too much. But when we are intentional in this time, that's us doing life with God. That's us making space for him to show us who he really is, a loving father. And lastly, the last practice is the practice of slowing. Okay? Jesus moved slowly through life. So here are some fun, non-legalistic practices that we can try in order to slow down. Number one, driving the speed limit. The plus is, this is also the law. Okay. Um, number two, coming to a full stop at stop signs. 
This might be more of a California thing, uh, but a lot of you guys from California, so. Uh, number three, driving in the slow lane, just for fun. Number four, turning off your phone sometimes. Number five, walking slower. Number six, talking slower, eating slower. Okay? Choosing the longest line when you're checking out and not looking at your phone, right? Just being in the moment, being present. And now that some of you have officially written me off as like, boo, bring back Pastor Chris, like we value efficiency and none of these things are efficient. Hear me out. Do you know what, what happens, what opens up in moments of quietness and boredom? In moments where you're standing in line for the checkout and you're not looking at your phone and you're like, Ugh, well, I have nothing to do now because I have to wait in this stupid long line because that random pastor told me to do this. You know what happens in that moment? It opens up a portal for prayer. Each of these inefficient moments are potential portals for prayer, little opportunities sprinkled throughout our days to bring us back to the awareness of the Holy Spirit in our life. But what happens when all these potential opportunities are swallowed up by our phones, right? And our jam-packed overflowing schedules, what's left? Two hours on a Saturday when you come to church and you remember God? Five minutes in your day when you read a page of your devotional book and you try to remember God? If that's all the remembering and awareness of God that is happening in our lives, it's so incomplete, right? It's not that it's bad. God is not shaming you, but it's incomplete. And if you do not know me, right, um, this is not, this message is not meant to be, it's not guilt, this is not shame, this is definitely not judgment. I struggle with this. I'm recovering from this. This is an invitation. This is an invitation. And the invitation of Jesus is that he asks you to take what he calls his yoke on your life. What if this next season of your life is not marked by busyness? It's not marked by hurry or faster, faster, faster. But what if this next season is marked by peace and thriving? The invitation of Jesus was to take what he called his yoke on your life, and ancient followers called it a rule of life. And extend, so I'm gonna read this invitation for you. This is from Jesus. And this is an invitation for anyone who is going through burnout, going through exhaustion, anyone who is suffering from hurry sickness, anyone who is tired. I'm gonna be reading from the message translation. And I invite you actually to close your eyes and just listen to these words that Jesus is inviting you to enter into this morning. This is what he says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Then come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Right? He's saying, look at my lifestyle. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. For I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. This is the invitation. This is the invitation. If you are going through anything currently that makes this invitation, when you heard it right now, it just sparked something in your soul today. Just know, 
Jesus does not want to leave you where you are, right? Jesus does not want to leave you in this place of hurry, 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 busy, 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 adding more to your to-do list. He offers you a solution this morning that is tried and true from his own life. So let's slow down, let's match his pace, let's walk with him and let him show you how to do it. Let him influence you and accept his invitation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have so much love for each person here, whether we know it, whether we acknowledge it, whether we recognize it. You're just waiting for space in our life to reveal it to us. So in the hurried pace that some of us may live in, in our faster, faster, faster world, help us, help us, Holy Spirit, to slow down and follow Jesus at his pace. This is our prayer in his name, amen.